I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, and this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science, and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Today, we're talking about autism, and we're going to talk about autism across the age groups in children, adolescents, and adults. And with me, I've got an expert on the topic, my colleague and my teacher, Dr. Tim Morris, a consultant child psychiatrist. To set the agenda, we're talking about um, autism, what it looks like for all the age groups, and we're going to try to uh, talk a little bit about how we assess it. And we're also going to talk about the controversial topic of why it's a disorder and what does neurodiversity mean? And let's go. Let's get straight to it. What is autism? Autism's big in the news, big on the internet. There's been an explosion, if you like, of people exploring autism and autism diagnosis probably over the last 10, 15 years, with the emergence of something called autism spectrum disorders. The magic change. Yeah. So autism is a social communication difficulty or a disorder. And that's where you may have no communication, no speech, no language. Or you may have what appears to be reasonable speech and language, but don't understand how to use it in a social setting. And I guess that's the two edges of the spectrum, isn't it? No language, possible learning difficulties to reasonable language, just not quite getting it. So that's what we mean when we say spectrum, from very, very deprived, very, um, a very affected social communication to social communication that's on the awkward side. So that's, if you like, part one of two parts of autism. Mm -hmm. um, the second part is rigidity and lack of flexibility, which at one level can be panting and repeating things over and over and over, you know, a little child that watches the same video 200 times a day and can't change to at the other end, a preference for sameness, a difficulty moving from one activity to another because it stresses you. So we're kind of looking at a person's ability to converse with the world, with people in it and with events and surroundings and environment. And when we look at how a person converses with people in the world, we split it up. So we, when we say social communication, that's kind of our way of saying how a person converses with other human beings. And that can have a verbal form, how we communicate with language, understand language, as in receive it, and also use it. 
Um, and the other bit is the nonverbal bit, which is how we understand and express uh, emotions in a, in a using our body language, using our gestures, using our facial expressions, but also how we understand other people's body language and facial expressions. And then there is the bit of how we deal with people and their unspoken rules. So social communication also includes the social rules. For example, um, how it's important to uh, respect people's distance. Distance is a big thing, and that's one of the things that we understand. For example, where I'm from in the Middle East, personal distance is viewed socially as very small. It's okay to kind of queue up very close to each other. And here in the UK, the rules are different. You have to have a very distant personal space where you have to queue about an arm's length apart. And these are the unspoken rules that we have to understand when we're dealing with other people in the world. So that's what we mean when we say social communication. And then there is the conversing with the environment and with the rules of the world, how we make sense of it. That's the repetitiveness, the inflexibility, the attachment routines. We try to neatly divide two components, but of course, in real people, they're not it's never so neat. And now we're talking about a spectrum. There's huge variation. So there's huge variation culturally anyway. For example, as you said, in different cultures, there's a different level of closeness. But there's also unwritten rules. So you may be physically closer to people in your family, to hmm. people who are close friends. There may be hidden rules about, you know, touching people. If you haven't seen them for a long time, you may give them a big hug, but if you've seen them, you know, yesterday, you wouldn't. And it's really complicated. People with autism struggle with these sort of things because it's not written down. It's not structured. You have to work it out. So they're the, they're the core features. They're, of course, different at different ages. So very little ones, probably say the under fives, may have more difficulty with eye contact. People with, if you like, severe autism mm. fell under the old categorization of childhood autism. Childhood autism and Asperger's are still being used um, among some clinicians and some and, and people as well as terminology because we've moved on from that since 2015. There's a group of people who would fit the old diagnostic criteria of childhood autism, they tend to be you know, like more autistic, so have more autism features. People with historical diagnosis of Asperger's or sometimes called high-functioning autism had less features, but they're all now encompassed within this spectrum. And then you've got the your age dimension and what's obvious in the under fives. So you may get a group of people who have more obvious autism spectrum disorder under five. And there's a be a group of people in the under fives where we don't think they've got autism, but when they're five to 10, you start to think about it because mm. the symptoms become more apparent. Or mm. again, in the teenage years, is the biggest pickup for cases that haven't been seen before. And coming back to the social world, the social world is the most complex when you're a teenager. One, you're learning the social world. Two, it's very pressured. And you're, in a way, with our school education system, you're forced into a certain social pattern. Hmm. Wherever in the world you are, 
once you're an adult, you get a bit more choice so you can kind of find your space in the world. So, so there's sort of probably the, there's the under fives, which are perhaps a different group in terms of doctors and clinics spotting it. You know, often that group hasn't started with spontaneous language by say two years. So we're going to, we're going to group it up and talk about it under fives and then between five and let's say 10 and then from 10 to 18 and then 18 onwards. So let's talk about the under fives because that's a very common, um, and I get people asking people I know socially, people asking me this question, what, you know, my child is four and I think he's a bit awkward. He's, um, the language is a bit delayed and it's just, and you know, they have a brother who's autistic, I think. And how do we, how do we draw the line? Let's talk about this and try and explain it to people. How do we draw the line um, before the age of five? Because that's a child who's potentially still developing. We don't know where they're going to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you've just said is is the important one for parents to hold on to is quite often we don't know. Hmm. Um, so in some cases we can make a diagnosis, usually with no language or very limited language, very rigid patterns of behavior. Yes, you can make a diagnosis, but quite often you can't. And that's frustrating for families and parents, but it's probably better for the professionals involved to say, we're not sure hmm. we'll wait than hmm. it is to either say, no, it's definitely not autism when it might well be, or hmm. yes, it is when it might not. And that is definitely the hardest message to convey. We're not sure that, that your audience will know about nice guidance, nice guidance. There's nice guidance for assessment and recognition for autism. Nice guidance says you might have to wait a year. Hmm. Come back to this in a year. Yeah. So if I, if I was a parent, I would try and be happier with somebody who says, I'm not really sure come back in a year. Then somebody who says, oh, I definitely know. So the, the not knowing is very difficult, I think, for parents. And especially at that age when you're making decisions about school and making decisions about what you're going to do for this child to help them settle into, into first year of school. It's a critical time. And I think what you're saying is that a lot of the time we just monitor if we see, so sometimes we make a diagnosis if things are very clear. And often that means children who are nonverbal, who do not have the ability to speak or understand spoken language, or if the symptoms of rigidity are very, very clear and we can't not make a diagnosis. But sometimes if, if it's on the fence, we leave it on the fence. And why is that? What is the value of not giving a diagnosis or giving a diagnosis of autism very early in life then, do you think, Tim? So there are probably two main things. The first is it might be something else. You might need more investigations, more assessment of other things, other genetic disorders, simple things like hearing problems can present in that way. And some children who are very deprived can prevent present in that way. So there are one reason is it might be other things. Hmm. So you, you don't want to miss other things. 
And I suppose the other reason for delaying is there isn't a specific treatment for autism. You know, if the child needs speech and language therapy, they should have speech and language therapy. The intervention should be carried out for the problem, mm. not for the diagnosis. That's very critical, isn't it? In, and that's often the hardest bit to try and 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 explain to people who are new to the profession or to explain to parents sometimes is that we have and in a previous episode we'd spoken about diagnosis and formulation and that there is a part that you put a label on the thing on the on the illness on the presentation but also you have to address the child not the diagnosis address the issues that are presenting not the diagnosis so that's very important and and like you said it's important not to miss things that might look like autism. Let's talk about, I just want to tip the hat a little bit to learning disabilities and other difficulties that can present with kind of red herring symptoms and people might rush to the diagnosis of autism. What do we think about in the under fives? What do we look for other than hearing problems, vision problems? What do we think about in the under fives before we go to autism? So learning difficulties is is the commonest issue. It is difficult because it's not usually instead of autism. It's often together. Yeah. And children, we group children by year age. And of course, there's a big difference. You're a year younger, you're developmentally younger. People don't develop at the same speed anyway. So you can be within the normal range, but two years behind somebody who's in your your age group, your pram group or whatever, because you're developing late. Um, Very premature babies, for example, Hmm. may develop late. And children who have a significant illness in the early period may develop late. So there's lots of reasons for differences in developmental speed. So that's one of the problems. You just don't know. You don't know whether this young person in, say, in a clinic setting is somebody who's developing on a slower but normal trajectory. And of course, I'm describing it like it's in a straight line, but of course it isn't. It's it's. Classes exact. Um, you may develop speech and language quickly, or you may develop it slowly. You may walk early. You may catch a ball. You, it, it's not straightforward. The difference between somebody developing at one speed and another speed when you're two or three is very little. That difference can become greater as you get older, which is why you sometimes find there's a pickup. In the five-year-olds. And parents will, will refer to this as a spurt. Yeah. Kids develop and flourish. The first year of, of, of proper school will look very different compared to kids who've, who've just been in kindergarten or in nursery. And I'm going to try and explain this bit 
about how we look at autism and learning disabilities or learning difficulties, right? So for the purposes of this, we're going to call learning disabilities, the intellectual disabilities, is where there is a global delay in the child's development. The child in every aspect of their development is behind where they should be at a, with a critical degree. So it's not just within a variation, there's a critical delay. And what is the difference between that and autism? So autism is a delay in social communication and the ability to be flexible and converse with the world and the environment in a flexible manner. And if this delay in these two aspects is happening alone without other bits of this child's development being affected, then it's called autism. If it is happening as part of a global delay in the child's development, then it's within learning disability. If it's happening to a larger degree, so let's say a child has a learning difficulty, right? A learning disability, they're disabled uh, intellectually. Let's say they have an, uh, a general full-scale IQ of 70, right? But their social communication ability, their ability to converse flexibly with the world is delayed. Let's give it a, a just an arbitrary score of 50. So there is a 20 arbitrary point delay between their social communication and flexibility and their full scale development. So this is when we make a diagnosis of autism on top of a learning disability. So what I'm trying to say to people is that when we say we're we're thinking about learning disability as a differential as a possibility when we're assessing for autism this is not this is not ignoring the social communication difficulties this is taking them within context. And then there is also gender that we that we think about because and we're going to come to that in a minute when we talk about 10-year-olds and teenagers, but that's that's part of what we think about. And we think about environments. So children who grow up in stimulating environments develop differently to children who grow up in understimulated environments or deprived or um, neglected environments or abusive environments. So these also affect a person's development. But again, we think about the critical threshold, don't we? The learning difficulties is is is, is tricky to explain in that way especially in the very young, because yeah. they won't be expected to have developed high-level cognitive skills. Um, those develop in later teenage years. Um, the measurement of IQ, you use the word 70 and 50, is imperfect. Um, again, we've got the developmental trajectory. What you might be looking for is things like even in your four or five-year-olds, a parent who says, well, they're really good at this, this, and this. They remember everything about such and such Thomas the Tank Engine or whatever TV program they're watching. You know, they remember every single episode. They know what's coming next, yet they don't seem to get it. So that's how you might see a gap mm. between their overall you know, like, ability to function and their social communication. Sure. You're probably looking more in that way than a technical test and measure. We've gone to the same supermarket every time and they get lost completely or they wander off and they're just fascinated by tins of beans. 
Yeah. So you, you're looking for things like that more than the technical testing. Yeah. And I think one of the, one of the guidelines for clinicians then is if the parent thinks there's something wrong, take that seriously because the parent usually knows they might not know what the diagnosis is or what the label is, or they might say, well, I think it's autism when it isn't, but it's something else, but they spotting something and the yeah. professional's job is to try and work out what that something is. And I guess from a parent's point of view, um, don't get too hooked into one particular diagnostic label that you've seen on YouTube or on a, a video because you're, you know, most professionals would say, yes, you're picking up on something. We're not quite sure what it is. We'll try and work it out. And there isn't, I mean, I suppose this comes across all the age ranges. There are some good ways of assessing for autism, but there are no tests for autism. There's nothing that says definitely yes, definitely no. But yeah, li listen to the parent or the carer and also the, the school. Because um, they're the other group of people that this might be preschool, but once a young person starts in school, they're the other group of people who, one, spend a lot of time with that child and two, spend a lot of time with children. So they you generally they have a sense. They might not know what, but they know, oh, this isn't quite right. So I do that rather than testing for numbers, if you like. So the gold standard for us when we test is the the ADOS, which is the... Now, the gold standard is ADI and ADOS. Both of them, yeah. Both of them together. So the ADI is Autism Diagnostic Interview, has been revised, and the ADOS 2, because that's also been revised. So and the ADI, let's tell people what the ADI does and what the ADOS does. Okay, so the technical instruments, there are others available. The ADIR is a structured interview asking about development. Mm -hmm. It usually asks in three age bands, essentially. Um, one is what was the, what was the child like as an infant? They usually then ask quite a lot of questions about um, age four to five. So you would typically ask a parent sort of an older child, um, what were they like at four or five, which in the UK is usually, you know, what were they like when they started school or their first year at school? So you can try and tag your memories to that period. And then they, the third bit is what are they like now? Quite a lot of the ADI is tagged to the four or five year age group. And it is things like what were their friendship groups like? parties, what were their behavior at parties? So it's questions like that. They're asked in a structured way. It's quite a long interview. It can take three hours, you know. So for clinical use, it's just really good for gaining information. It's also used for research, which given that we don't know everything about autism already is also an important component. So, so some clinicians will use the ADI and some will just take in your developmental history, which is a kind of a, your um, a very similar form of of asking questions about the development of the child but without the scoring aspect of it and then ADOS 
Because people will have heard this term a lot. Autism Diagnostic Observational Schedule, now version two, has four modules depending on your language and age. Module one for little ones has lots of toys. Module two, intermediate, has his mod module three, and module four is sort of adult or, or full language teenagers. So they're slightly different, but, but it is designed to do all ages. There's also periods in the, in the ADOS where the examiner doesn't try and interact with the young person and you see what happens. Do they, does the young person try then to interact with the examiner or do they just carry on? It's also much better at picking up the social communication aspect and, and less good at picking up the rigidity. Yeah. So you might miss things. And the third bit is there might be other reasons for scoring on an ADOF. For example, if you're depressed, no, no, no. you won't, you'll score in the autism. Yeah. And that is very critical, I think, for the age groups of above five, five to 10. Yeah. And then 10 to 18, that's really critical. It's choosing the time to make an autism assessment because most of the time kids present to us, don't they? in those two age groups particularly, some of them will come with the just main complaint of I'd like an autism, an autism assessment, but a lot of them will come with other problems and autism will be detected as part of the rest of the assessment. I suppose the other bit which we haven't talked about is at the moment we're conceptualizing this, if you like, as a deficit model. This mm. is a group of people who have problems with X, Y, and Z. And of course, the other part of an assessment should be, well, what are their strengths? What are they good at? Yeah. The, the ADOS can be quite good for that because it has lots of sections and it can show strengths as well. Strengths or areas that aren't weak at all, um, even if you do end up with a diagnosis. I mean, there is a danger with using these structured assessments that we use a deficit model because they come from a sort of like a medical or a psychological background that's looking for a problem. So that's the other problem with the assessment that the focus is on the deficit to make the diagnosis rather mm. than strengths. Like you were saying, there are so many things to take into consideration when we're making a diagnosis. And you made a reference to the NICE guidance, which are which is our guidance here. And I and I talked about this in the episode about diagnosis and formulation of guidance. And the guidance in the UK is called NICE, not because it's nice, but it's a short short for something. <laughs> we make an assessment taking into consideration the history, the current presentation, the presence or absence of other problems or things that might affect the presentation that we're looking at. And then we think about also um, ADOS is one of the things that we use. ADI is one of the things that we use. Sometimes we need to do a whole um, cognitive assessment, which is looking at IQ or other parts. Sometimes we also look at ADHD as a possibility or something in the background. Sometimes if there is ADHD symptoms, then we, we make a decision to treat that first. Or if there are depressive symptoms, we make a decision to treat that first and then reassess for, for autistic symptoms. So we've talked about under five. We've talked about assessing. Let's talk about teens. So 
most people with an autism spectrum disorder should be, it should be possible to make a diagnosis before they enter secondary school. Sometimes it's not done, but that's often because of, if you like, system problems, lack of hospital appointments, lack of referral pathways, rather than not being able to assess that the child, if you like. So there's, there's potentially two groups in the teenage years. There's the group that's been missed, where it would have been possible to make a diagnosis had they been seen, had they been assessed. You know, so for that group, you're often doing the same kind of assessment just later, accepting that they're older in development, but you can do essentially the same kind of development. There's then a second group, if you like, where they did not appear to have autism spectrum disorder when they were little, but now that the world has changed for them, they're appearing as if they've got autism. Under the demands that have developed, yeah. And again, historically, there was a, a weight to more boys than girls being diagnosed with autism. And that's probably because our criteria and our way of understanding was, was gender, gender specific. So there is, so I think we do take gender into consideration when we make these assessments. There's a convention to split the genders and say, well, girls are more social and just much better at this than boys. And of course, I think it's probably fair to say that the very best girls are really good at it. And the very worst boys are really bad at it. The overlap of the curve is much greater than the separation. Yeah. You, you can't, it's nice to go, oh yes, the girls are in one camp and the boys are in the other. That's just not true. Yeah. And lots of boys that are really good socially. Yeah. And there's lots of girls that are not that good socially. It's more a way we talk about it, if you like, in the media than yeah. in reality. You know that. Um, in the same way, if you think about height, yes, girls are generally a bit smaller in height than boys, but there are plenty of tall girls and there are plenty of small boys. I'm wanting to talk about adults before I go to uh, talk about diversity. So adults, we're seeing more and more adults seeking out a diagnosis of autism and there are clinics popping up for making a diagnosis of autism in adult groups. And the, the assessment process is the same. I think the complexity is that it's more difficult in adults to get a proper neurodevelopmental history. And then the other complexity is a person's um, objective experience. And you set your life up to suit your needs, to suit how you are able, and I go back to that term, converse with the world, how you're able to converse with the world. So you choose friends who can respect your definition of friendship. You choose a job that can be suitable to your definition of, um, of right, wrong rules and interaction with peers. But that's one end of the spectrum. And then there is an end of the spectrum where we see people who are really, really struggling to meet the demands that are required of them as adults, hold down a job, pay their bills, um, form um, friendships, and even access help and support for physical health problems. And being able, on the very end of the spectrum, there are people who are, while verbal and, and appear 
you know, able to engage socially, struggle to engage to a degree that really delays them and hinders them. And sometimes that comes to a point where there is a serious uh, risk to them out of self-neglect or risk from others and vulnerabilities. So let's just touch on that really quickly. How do we think about that and how do we assess? So like in adolescence, there's a group who've just been missed, who should have had a diagnosis earlier, but for one reason or another didn't. Um, there's a couple of things that happen in adulthood, isn't there? So one reason why either autism wasn't apparent or, or has been missed is you're living typically as a young person in a family. That provides you with a pretty solid, structured environment. And most parents try to support their children and their young adults, so they structure the world for them. People don't leave home often until their 20s. So you may not have a problem with your autism because your family or the people you're living with do some of the things that... They they scaffold you. Yes. The other group of adults who present late may find a partner or a group of friends, but more typically a partner who does that scaffolding for them. So they can go through that a mist or the symptoms didn't cause a problem because somebody else helped the scaffolding. So you can get to your 40s, perhaps your, your family are no longer there, that would be normal, or your relationship and partners have disappeared or you've got separated and divorced, and suddenly you're left as a mid-40-year-old adult struggling. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes, well... It's obvious you've got autism. Why wasn't it picked up? And it's because of the the removal of support, as opposed to you've developed autism when you're forty. And I, I think it's it's very also important to think about people who present with other problems. So sometimes people present with um, emotional dysregulation. They call them mood swings or um, difficulties with difficulties in maintaining relationships or difficulties in following social rules. And sometimes, and I know that in, in some areas of the world, the training is just not very good for people who are specialized in adult psychiatry when it comes to neurodevelopmental problems like ADHD and ASD. So sometimes we see there is a um, um, people tend to make diagnoses like borderline personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder or whatever personality disorder when you you could have looked at the possibility of autism, the possibility of a neurodevelopmental disorder. Not only are the I mean we're going back into the history of autism, but schizophrenia. For example, when autism was first sort of coalesced as a diagnosis, yeah, it was thought of as a childhood form of schizophrenia. That that, that was their idea in the forties. So, diagnosis or, or perhaps diagnostic labelling is, is very complex. Yeah, and it's not fixed. And I think if you're a non-professional, there's a tendency to think of these things as objects. You have boxes, and actually they're probably better thought of as concepts, ideas. Um, the whole point of them is they're a shorthand, it's helpful, it gives you a guide to treatment, intervention, or things not to do, rather than an identity. In the last 
few minutes we've got, let's talk about, isn't it neurodiversity, Tim? What do you think? Is it, we keep talking about disorder, 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 but we make a distinction between autism and other disorders like a depressive disorder or, a, and we call them mental illnesses, which is a different box from developmental disorders. Is it a disorder or is it diversity? So, so my starting point would be, is this causing an impairment? If you're a multi-billionaire computer scientist who's very fixated, rigid, perhaps lasts some social skills, are you truly disordered? Well, might be in some ways, but you've kind of compensated. Is that a diagnostic disorder? As opposed to, you can't quite understand the social world, you can't hold down a job, you, you're very thick. So, so I think we, we'd start with, with diagnosis is, does it cause an impairment? For example, depression, you might just be a bit grumpy and unhappy. It doesn't cause you an impairment. Whereas we would draw the line when you have changed from your usual routine, you're much less happy. You, like all of these things, at the extremes, it's easy. You can say yes and no. And the trouble with the spectrum is, of course, we've got to encompass. Probably don't understand enough about mental illness to differentiate it from neurodevelopmental. Okay. So we think most of these things are brain based at one level. But is that brain in terms of anatomy? Is it brain in terms of? neurochemistry or is it brain in terms of the way you function things you've learned or not if you like cognitive or emotions i suppose the essential difference that we now talk about in neurodiversity and neurodevelopmental disorders is we're saying that they're there from a very early age i guess as a clinician it's helpful to have some diagnostic labels and diagnostic constructs to help guide treatment and, and guide family search for information. And that's it. I think we had a lovely time. Thank you, Tim, for talking to us today. Um, we talked about autism. We talked about how we diagnose autism, what it looks like in different age groups, including adulthood. We also talked about whether it's a neurodiversity or a disorder. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.